Good morning, everyone. I want to say welcome to everyone at the 01 Highland Park Crossroads in Lake Forest. It's great to be here with you this morning. Hope that everybody had a great Christmas celebrating over the last couple days. I know that one of my favorite parts of Christmas is all of the special traditions that families do around that time of year. One of the favorite traditions that my family always had growing up, and we still do to this day, is on Christmas Eve morning, we get up and we gather together, and my dad makes a delicious breakfast of Swedish pancakes with lingonberries and some bacon and fresh fruit. And it's just this fantastic way to, together as a family, start off our celebrations on Christmas Eve leading into Christmas Day. Since my wife Lindsay and I have been here in Illinois, we've come up with a couple Christmas traditions of our own. Our favorite tradition is our annual Christmas date to the city. Every December, we head downtown to take in all of the holiday bliss that's happening down there. So there's a bunch of people doing their last-minute Christmas shopping. There's the Chris Kindle market that we love to go to where we get to taste some authentic and traditional German food and see the decorations and just be a part of everything that's happening down in the city that time of year. One of the things that we've realized, though, as we've gone down there, like we did this year for the past couple years, is that not much that happens in Chicago around Christmas has anything to do with Christ. But there are a few people who are doing what they can to remind people what the season is really all about. They call themselves the God Squad. These people, every year for the last 30 years, have set up a life-size nativity scene in Daly Plaza right in the middle of downtown. And they do this so that as people come to the market or as they walk around doing their shopping, that they're forced to at least be reminded of the fact that Christmas has something to do with Christ. Now we might debate the effectiveness of setting up a stable and a manger and statues of Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus in the middle of the street. But I do have to say that I appreciate what these people are trying to do. There's something that worries me about this also, though. What worries me is that when people think about Christ at Christmas, that they'll only think of that nativity scene that they'll only think of Jesus in a manger, that baby Jesus is all that they think of around Christmas time or maybe any other time. This is the classic Ricky Bobby mistake, right? In the movie Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby is the NASCAR driver, and he sits down for dinner with his family, and he decides it would be a good thing to start off with a word of prayer. So he starts off and he says, Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we thank you for this bountiful meal of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. Dear tiny infant Jesus, and then his wife cuts him off and says, you know, honey, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. Ricky Bobby says, well, I like Christmas Jesus the best, and I'm saying grace. So when you say grace, you can pray to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whatever you want. Now, I'm guessing that most of us probably don't pray to the dear Lord baby Jesus. But I wonder if we do sometimes like the Christmas Jesus best. I wonder if sometimes we prefer to think about Jesus 
as a baby. And I have to say, this doesn't surprise me, because babies are, they're cute and cuddly, you know, and they don't demand our obedience or our allegiance to them. In that relationship, we, as the adults, are the ones with all of the power. The baby it has no power in the relationship. But the Jesus that we meet in the Bible, at least after the first couple chapters of Matthew and Luke, is not a baby. He actually does grow up, and he does demand our obedience and our allegiance. And he is the one with all the power and not us. So at Christmas, while it's great to think about the nativity scene, that's an appropriate thing to do, that doesn't tell the whole story. It leaves part of it out. And this morning, I want to focus on a different part of the story, one that sometimes we don't focus on as much. Maybe we don't focus on it as much because it's part of the story that actually hasn't happened yet. But I want to shift our attention from Christmas, when Jesus came as a baby, to the fact that one day, Jesus is coming back. Not as a baby, but as a mighty king. And he's going to come in ready to judge his enemies and then to bring in a new age of peace that we get to enjoy forever. Now, at other points throughout the history of the church, people have understood this better than we do. They've understood the importance of needing to think about the second coming. We can use Advent as an example. Advent first started being celebrated or observed by Christians in the 6th century. But back then, Advent, which is a word that just means coming, was entirely focused on the second coming. It was entirely focused on that day when Jesus would return. Now we know that eventually it became associated with the first coming, with the first Advent, which is why we celebrate it for the four weeks leading up to Christmas. But even when that happened, it was still the second half of Advent, the second two of the four weeks that was focused on the first coming, while those first two weeks were still focused on the second coming. Today, Advent has virtually lost its focus on Christ's second coming. But that does not mean that we should. So this morning, we're going to take some time to think about the second coming. And we're going to think about it in relation to the first coming. Because as we stand here this morning, as we sit here this morning, we do so in a unique place. We do so after the first advent and before the second advent. So you and I are here as people living between the advents. And as people living between the advents, we are supposed to always be looking back to the first coming while at the same time, looking forward to the second coming. Because we are people living in this space that is between the advents. Now, too many people in this space are rubberneckers. You know what a rubbernecker is, right? It's someone who's driving along the highway, something on the side of the road catches their attention, and they watch it as it passes by them, and they become fixated on this thing behind them and ignoring what's in front of them. That's a dangerous way to drive. An equally dangerous way to drive, though, is to be paying attention only to what's in front of you while not ever looking in the rearview mirror. 
When I was in driver's ed, I remember they taught us that we're supposed to look up at that rearview mirror every three to four seconds. So you're looking forward, 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 back. Forward, 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 back. That's what living between the advents is supposed to be like. Always looking forward to Christ's second coming, while at the same time, always looking backwards. As people living between the advents, that is supposed to be our posture. That's what we're going to think about this morning. And I want to think about that with the help of the book of Revelation. Revelation, it's maybe a book that we don't think about too much, or we don't read it too much, because it's a little bit confusing. But we're going to try to make some sense of some of the things that it has to share with us today. Revelation, the title of the book, comes from the first couple words of the book. It starts off by saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation, it's the word apocalypse. And what it means is simply unveiling or revealing. So when Revelation starts off by saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ, what it's telling us is that this is a book about the revealing of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And what it does is it pulls back the curtain between heaven and earth so that we can see Jesus as he really is. And what we see as the curtain is pulled back is that the Jesus that we find is one that would, well, it's one that would make Ricky Bobby pretty uncomfortable. For example, one of the things that we see early on in the book, the eighth verse of the first chapter says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So in this first chapter of the unveiling of Jesus Christ, what we see is that Jesus is the one who is. He is the eternal one, the great I am. He's also the one who was. He was before the creation of the world, and he was when he came in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Jesus is also the one who is to come. He is coming back again one day. So only eight verses into this book, we see that Revelation is a book that's addressed to people living between the Advents. It's addressed to people like you and me, between Christ's first and his second coming. So what I want to do is I want to draw out three insights from Revelation that help us better know how to live life between the Advents. The first insight that we see is that we follow the one who is both the lion and the lamb. We follow the one who is both the lion and the lamb. This is an image that comes out of the fifth chapter of Revelation, where John, this is a book where John is writing about a revelation that he receives, a vision that he receives from Jesus. So in this vision, he sees this image of a lion of Judah, he says. That's an image that we find in the Old Testament that's talking about the Messiah. So John sees the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, standing as a lion. And then talking about the same figure, he says, and then I saw one standing as a lamb who was slain. So Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Now one of the things that we see as we read the scriptures is that when Jesus came in his first coming, he came primarily as a lamb. Not exclusively, but primarily. 
When Isaiah was prophesying about the Messiah who was to come, he says this in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Then John the Baptist, when he first meets Jesus in the first chapter of John, he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Both Isaiah and John the Baptist understood that when Jesus came for the first time, he was going to come primarily as a lamb. The Jews did not understand this. Jesus' own disciples did not understand this. They were expecting a king to come. They were expecting a military ruler who would come and set up a political kingdom, freeing the Jews from Roman oppression. That's what they were expecting the Messiah to be. And the disciples actually, they had such a hard time understanding that Jesus came as a lamb, that even after Jesus had died, had been sacrificed, had risen again, and before he ascends to heaven in the first chapter of Acts, the disciples come to Jesus in verse 6, and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They ask him this question. Is now the time where you're going to take action? They didn't understand that Jesus came as a lamb to be slaughtered, not as a king to rule at that time. And it's worth noting here that when Jesus presents himself to us in our lives today, he still presents himself primarily as a lamb. He doesn't force himself on us. He doesn't force us to follow him or to be obedient to him. That's a choice that he gives us, not something that we're forced into. Now, I've been to the zoo a number of times. Never at the zoo have I seen a lamb. Because lambs just, they're not really that interesting. You don't go to the zoo to see a lamb. But a lion, now a lion is an animal that will captivate your attention. And you might take a trip to the zoo just to stand on the other side of a cage of an animal that you can't take your eyes off. Now imagine if you came across that same lion in the wild. Right? There's no way that you would be able to even think about anything else. You would just be captivated by this animal. Not so much with a lamb. But one of the things that we need to think about as people living between the advents is that you know, we probably need to be paying more attention to Jesus, the lamb, than we currently do. Because if a lamb had died, was dead for three days, and then came back to life, that would be something paying attention to, worth paying attention to. And that is what we have in Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Even though Jesus came as a lamb the first time, and he doesn't demand our attention right now, there will come a day when he will demand our attention. Right? There will come a day when Jesus comes back as a lion, as one who cannot be ignored. Revelation talks about this in chapter 19. We're going to turn there now together. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the 19th chapter of Revelation. This is a chapter that talks about the day when Jesus comes back. 
And this is a chapter that can be a little bit confusing. It can even be a little bit off-putting. It gives this description of Jesus that's full of imagery. It's all of this symbolic language that's not necessarily meant to be taken literally, but it's to help us think imaginatively about what Jesus is like. So we're going to walk through some of that symbolism together. And in this passage, we also see a lot of violence, which is the thing that can be a little bit off-putting to people. But we're also going to find that maybe this passage isn't as violent as it appears when we first read it. So Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. This is John writing. He says, Then I saw heaven opened. Remember, this is the revelation, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. So here it is. Heaven is opened, and Jesus Christ is revealed. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Who comes riding on a white horse? A king comes riding on a white horse. So Jesus comes riding in on this horse as king. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He is the just judge and the mighty warrior. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. A diadem is just another word for crown. It's important to realize that in this day, when John's writing, the most powerful kings would wear two to three crowns on their head to show that they had conquered two to three different territories. Jesus comes riding in, not with two or three crowns, but with many crowns to show that he is the king of all. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's going to be important. We're going to come back to that. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Also important, hold on to that. We'll be back to that too. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now what usually comes from someone's mouth? Words, right? As I stand here, it's words that come from my mouth. That's typically what comes from someone's mouth. This sword is an image, it's a symbol saying that the only weapon that Jesus brings with him is his word. He's got a sword coming from his mouth with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, so far we've got Jesus riding in as a king on his white horse with the armies of heaven following behind him. Now this is where the action starts. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured 
and with it the false prophet. Now in Revelation, the beast and the false prophet, these are Satan's henchmen that are on earth to do his will. So we have the beast was captured with the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword, the word, that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You can see how this passage can be a little bit confusing, a little bit violent, and maybe a little bit off-putting. But there's a key that helps us to understand what it is that this passage is trying to communicate. And the key is actually not found in what the passage says. The key is found in what the passage does not say. Something is missing in this story in Revelation 19. Did you catch what it is? Did you catch what was missing? The battle. The fighting. Right? Jesus rides in on his horse with his armies behind him, facing his enemies and their armies. And then what happens? It says the beast and the prophet were captured and they were thrown into the lake of fire. And then Jesus speaks and his enemies are destroyed. There's no fighting. Right? In this great battle of the last days, there is no battle. Why not? Why don't we see any fighting in this passage? It's because Jesus already did the fighting when he came the first time. Right? When he came as a lamb and hung on the cross for you and me. That is where Jesus won the battle. So when Jesus comes back again, he doesn't have to fight. And that gives us the second insight that we see for people living between the advents, which is that we know how the story ends and the battle has already been won. We know how the story ends and the battle has already been won. We may not know what tomorrow holds. We may not even know what tonight holds. In fact, we don't even know if we will make it home from church today without getting in a car accident. What we do know is that one day, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back as a king, and he will not be defeated by his enemies. That is a truth that we need to hold on to, because that gives us incredible hope. What irony it is that Jesus wins the battle not as the lion, but as the lamb. That he wins the battle by humbling himself by dying on the cross for your sake and for mine. It's no wonder then that Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God because Jesus has won his victory on the cross. I want to jump back to Revelation 19. There's two things that I said I wanted to come back to. The first one is in verse 13. Jesus is described as coming in with a robe dipped in blood. What's the deal with that? What, what's with this robe dipped in blood? The reason Jesus' robe is dipped in blood is because 
this battle in Revelation 19 at the end of time is not the first battle that Jesus has fought. Right? Jesus already fought the battle. We just saw that. So he comes in wearing a robe dipped in his own blood that he spilled on the cross. The next thing, in the very next verse, we see his armies coming in behind him dressed in linen, white and pure. Now think about this. This is an army. It's an army coming dressed in white linen. Why not military fatigues? Right? Why not battle gear? What's up with these white robes that they're wearing? Well, in part, it's because they know that there's not going to be a battle because they know that the battle's already been won, so there's no need to come dressed for battle. But there's another reason as well. These white robes that the armies of heaven come wearing are the same robes that the priests in the Old Testament would have worn. And this makes sense if we understand what the main function of priests were. The main function of the priests was to help God's enemies become God's friends. So as the priests offered up sacrifices for the people of Israel, they did so so that these sacrifices could cover over their sins so that they could move from being under God's condemnation to being under his blessing. And the nation of Israel is called a priestly nation. That means that they were to be looking outward to the nations around them and drawing them in so that these nations could go from being God's enemies to being God's friends. That's what priests were supposed to do. So this image of an army of priests coming in for this last battle reminds us that our role is the same today that we too are given the task of helping God's enemies to become God's friends. The only thing that matters on that last day is which side of the battle you're on. The only thing that matters is who you've given your allegiance to. Doesn't matter how much money you've made. Doesn't matter how successful you've been in life. It doesn't matter how many good things that you've done. The only thing that matters on that last day is who you have put your allegiance in. Our role as the people of God is to proclaim Christ's victory on the cross to those who are currently God's enemies so that they too can become God's friends and can join the armies of heaven on that last day. So we've seen that Revelation teaches us that we follow the one who is both the lion and the lamb. We've also seen that we know how the battle ends because it's already been fought. We know what the end of the story is. A third insight that we see in the book of Revelation, it comes just two chapters later. This is a sweet chapter, Revelation 21. You can open there. This is a chapter that describes our third insight, which is that we have a glorious future waiting for us. We have a glorious future waiting for us, and it's described here in the 21st chapter of Revelation. First seven verses say this. Then I saw 
a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God would no longer be far off from his people. God will dwell with his people. He will live with his people, like you live with your family, like you live with your friends. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this, this is so sweet. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We live in a broken world. We spent the fall together talking about living in a broken world. This world will not be broken forever. Jesus promises that he will come back and he will fix the brokenness. He will take away the crying and the pain and the death. He will make all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be with him as his God, and he will be my son. That's the future that awaits us. And the best part about it is that we will dwell in the presence of God. I'm looking forward, believe me, to there being no more death, no more pain, no more crying. But the sweetest thing about this picture in Revelation 21 is that we will dwell with God. That's something that hasn't been experienced by anyone since Adam and Eve in those first chapters of Genesis. But you and I will dwell in the presence of God forever. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling the children about Aslan for the first time. They've never met him. They don't know who he is. So the beavers describe Aslan as this mighty lion, as this courageous king. And Lucy says to Mr. Beaver, well, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, Safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. The same is true with Jesus. While thinking about the nativity scene is an important thing to do, it doesn't tell the whole picture. It doesn't tell the whole story. It leaves something important out. It leaves out the fact that one day Jesus is coming back, not as a baby, but as a king, ready to face his enemies and to bring in this new and lasting era of peace where we will live with him forever. John, who writes Revelation, knew this Jesus. 
He had seen this Jesus, and he was captivated by him. When he saw Jesus the lion, he didn't run. He didn't hide. He wasn't afraid. Instead, he longed for his return. In the last two verses of the last chapter of Revelation, Jesus promises, I am coming again soon. To that, John replies, Amen, come Lord Jesus. He was longing for the day when Christ would return, when he would fix up the brokenness, when he would make all things new. That is a truth that you and I, as people living between the advents, must hold on to. And to that end, we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came down to earth, that you humbled yourself, that you came as a lamb to be sacrificed for our sake. And oh, Jesus, we thank you for the promise that you are coming back again one day. We long for that day. We expect that to happen. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come back soon. And we cry out with John, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.